it's hard to describe, but the best product oriented founders use when you meet them in the first hour, it's clear. It's the words they use. It's the way they frame the problem. But that's kind it's of insights about the product. So dangerous too, right? This is uh, this, yeah. This, because we, as a data analytics company, I always worry about like Jeff Bezos had this famous saying recently, which when anecdotes and data conflict each other, I go with anecdotes. Basically, that's what you are saying yeah. too. So what the hell are we doing with data analytics, man? <laughs> we should be doing emotions analytics. Supporting the anecdotes. But then to scale that business, you need the data analytics. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. The scaling is all about the data analytics. From Foundation Capital, this is How to B2B a CEO. The show about how to scale your enterprise startup and how to grow from founder to CEO. I'm Ashu Garg, General Partner at Foundation Capital. On this episode, you get two CEOs for the price of one. My guests are Ajit Singh, co-founder, executive chairman, and the first CEO of data analytics company, ThoughtSpot, and Sudesh Nair, ThoughtSpot's current CEO. Ajit was also one of the co-founders of Nutanix, where Sudesh rose up the sales ranks to become president of the company. ThoughtSpot was founded less than eight years ago in 2012 and recently raised $250 million at a $2 billion valuation, a unicorn twice over. We spent most of this conversation going deep on how to build a world-class sales organization. But first, we also chatted about how they managed the passing of the CEO baton at ThoughtSpot. So these joins, you've transitioned to the chairman role. He's, he's the CEO. Tell us about how you rolled that out across the company. How did you deal with, you know, there's a change for both of you. And <laughs> more importantly, there's a change for the rest of the company. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, it was a process. Was masterfully done. By <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, look, you have to communicate. But before that, uh, it is important that you have trust of the people. If they don't trust you, then they're not going to believe what you're telling them. And last but not the least, you have to tell them that, hey, you have to see how it's going to play out, right? So it started with communicating with the board, like this is what I'm thinking. Because when we started the search, we were looking for a president and uh, a CEO transition where a founder is coming and telling them, I want to bring this person. And so you were the first person to broach that topic with the board. With to the say, board, hey. yeah. I like meet one-on-one on one with them, tell them why uh, I'm doing this, why I'm still going to be still working as hard as I have, because sometimes, you know, they might be like... They're like, oh, you just I, raised I, some money, you can't do this. You, so, yeah. you just raised a bunch you of money, disappear and are you me. now thinking of taking it easy, because Nutanix is a big company, and you made a bunch of money, or is this your path to retirement? So, <laughs> I had to convince them, and Sudish being a known quantity really, really helped. Then, uh, I had to share this with my co-founders, because, you know, they really uh, have uh, built this company, and uh, I had to, uh, even before he joined, I had Sudish meet many, many of them. Then um, I had to communicate with the senior leaders in the company executive team one by one and it was a lot of shock because nobody was expecting that this is going to happen. And then on the day of when we were going to announce, we, we had set up all hands and I sent out an email the night before and I started getting phone calls. Everybody was like, what the heck happened? <laughs> <laughs> and I also you know, shared with the customers, did a blog and everything. I think. Ultimately, uh, in this case, uh, at least, it was all very transparent, it was all very constructive. People understood the reasons and I told them that uh, you will see how it actually plays out and then you will trust me even more and that's exactly what has happened. I think uh, we are a 
much, much stronger company than we were before and it has been a very smooth assimilation of uh, Sudesh in the company and uh, we are working really well as a team. And we had difficult conversations around it too. Like before we joined, I, I remember telling, look, are you sure you want to do this? Because I know that you're not going to sit back and say, I'm just going to go uh, retire. Others may have that question, but I knew that Ajit is not going to do that. Which means that, look, I think if I'm coming in, are you at a point where you're secure enough to actually do this? And he actually said, look, I've thought this one through, right? So that having that conversation before was extremely important. And second, you know, coming, walking in, uh, it was important for me to make sure that um, the team understand that I'm not coming in swashbuckling, swinging from the chandelier saying, oh, everything is broken and all of that kind of stuff. Because people know there is a great thing going yeah. on. They have to see that by adding me, things have to incrementally get better. And it is a process where I have to earn the trust from every single person in this company. And in the last five months, uh, it's obviously become significantly easier if Ajit and the other co-founders and the board believes it, which we were uh, you know, fortunate enough to do that. Uh, but more importantly, the selflessness that we preach and the security that most people need to feel in their roles because you know, new CEO is yep. coming, who is he going to bring? Is my job secure? All of those things will be happening, whether or not you see it. So we had to go and fortify all of that. Uh, as part of the process, uh, also had to convince uh, Suvish's wife that he'll still have a life. He'll be able to spend <laughs> some time with his kid. Uh, you so mean he had a life in his prior <laughs> job at New Directs? <laughs> no, that is why. Because I told her that after Nutanix, we will have, uh, I'll take some time off. I said I'll take six months off at least. No matter when I leave, I'll take six months off. And I don't think I took six hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about sort of how you complement each other. So how do we complement? That's, that's uh, an interesting question. If you look at our backgrounds, uh, I have come from a product background. Product management is what I've done for most of my career. And uh, Sudish has uh, come from uh, a sales background. But both of us have been fortunate enough to learn from some of the best leaders in sales and product and technology. We have both been part of building companies, and when you are part of something from very early days, you get to learn a lot of things. So Sudish is extremely comfortable on the product side as well. He has a great relationship with the engineering team here. He talks to all of them all the time. Uh, I have a great relationship with our uh, sales team, the new sales leader that we have hired, marketing team. You know, both of us sort of work well as a team. Um, we defer to each other. We also consult each other on when I'm thinking about product. Uh, I know that I can actually sit down with Sudesh and have a meaningful discussion. He's not just a sales leader who says, I'm all about sales, I'm going to execute. You know, that's, That was one of the important things for me to bring him in as a CEO because even though someone might have uh, run a large sales organization, there is many sales uh, leaders that may not necessarily be as well-rounded to run a company because when you're running the company, you have to be that integrative thinker Mm -hmm. that can integrate thoughts and ideas from multiple functions, what impact it will have on customers, product, strategy, and everything. So the fact that he came from a technical background and did so well in, uh, in sales was a very important part of uh, him being here. I, I kind of feel like that this is like, um, it's never about two people. It's like the, the mosaic of uh, the puzzles that we're putting together. So for example, I knew that what I did at Nutanix is not why I'm here. I need to do a whole lot more. So first thing I had to think about is, how do we surround this with uh, everything that I learned at Nutanix and do it better? Because this is a much more complex 
much more significant disruptor in the market from a data space, right? So for, uh, if, you have, if I were to look at it, uh, my, my simple thesis around hiring is uh, unless you find one thing that they do significantly better than how you do it, don't hire them. That's uh, sometimes find a superpower in that person. Something in it, right? You just, look. Let's not be. I mean, we are all good at a lot of different things. That's why we are here. However, unless you find something that they are significantly better than you do, now the the thing that usually stand in the way of that is your own egos and insecurities. So if you can check the ego and insecurity and look objectively, the strength of this company is going to be that collage that we are building together. And that's what I said. You know, ten years from now, when we were to look back at ThoughtSpot and see, ah, oh, amazing. Obviously, the co-founders, the CEO, those names will there, but all it's all those other people. Unbelievable! I, I think that's the beauty of it, and I, it takes a lot of time for people to find that security. You know, when I started at Nutanix, I, I didn't have this uh, insecurity checked. Even now, I'm not saying 100%, but I've seen all the problems it creates. You can you really hire somebody who's better than you are? You know what? I was not ready for it, and I got into all sort of troubles. You know, I was lording over them. I, I should be your boss. Um, and that actually ends up creating other issues. At some point, you realize when it comes to sales, every 90 days, the results keep coming in. The report card is coming yes. in. And there is no place to hide. Is zero or hero? You made your number or not? Then at some point, it clicks. The people that you're hiring, you are going to be lifted up by them. You can't just stomp on their head and climb yeah. up. That doesn't work in sales specifically because it is such a eminently uh, uh, quantifiable job. And it's, you know, it's, it's a contact sport. Absolutely, so, full contact sport. Yeah. yeah. And I love that aspect, by the way, which is, I, I tell them that, like, if you ever buy ThoughtSport, I don't want you to ever spend a single dollar on any other product in this space. Don't want you to do that on Tableau. Don't want you to do that on Click, MicroStrategies, Hyperion, whatever the hell you have. We're taking all your budget. All of your budget. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, you know, like the, oh, the, the difference between what you thought you were getting into and the reality of the situation. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, it would be like you have a perception of what the company is like from outside. But once you step into a company, there is always going to be surprises, good and yeah. bad. And I'll tell you both. The, the good was, uh, you know, Ajit always told me that uh, ThoughtSpot had amazing culture and great people. And it's Except for Ajit. <laughs> <laughs> but once you come inside, you realize that there is some really seriously talented people who are extremely humble. And I think that combination is very hard to find because chances are you find some really talented people, they also happen to be jerks, right? And I think in, as a company, this uh, ThoughtSpot has already built a good foundation of somewhat jerk-free zone. Okay, that's interesting. Second, uh, on the other side though, uh, it was, I come from Nutanix where it was in a very clear sales motion that we have built which is I can walk into a data center and point to a physical device that is depreciating and say, look, that thing is depreciating and you have a budget associated with that. I have something cheaper, faster, better. And here is how I'm going to prove it to you. Give them that money to me. And I can go back in three years and do the same thing again and again. Here, the biggest surprise for me was that's not the case. There is no physical thing that I can point to and say that is depreciating. I'm not saying because it is software. I'm saying it is because most people don't know that they need ThoughtSpot. You're not replacing anything clear. It, the, 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 what you did with VDI at Nutanix was, was brilliant. There is no VDI. Yeah. Right? Second, just like Nutanix where we were competing with VMware, here Tableau is well-liked. 
And the way I would explain this is Tableau for customers, it is like the Walkman. You know, the Walkman that you used mm -hmm. to have in your uh, belt. Yes. As you used to walk around, your girlfriend used to make mixtape for you. I wish that was true, but yes. <laughs> and then every 30 minutes you will flip it, the cassette. If you're going to sell that issue, uh, an iPod, a little device, it's very difficult to ha overcome the objections that you may have, which is, can I put my girlfriend's favorite cassette tape inside this? Can I flip it every 30 minutes? So you can't do a feature war. It has to be an outcome conversation. Apple said, thousand songs in your pocket. Essentially, that was about saying unlimited access to music, which will soon turn into iPhone, which will be surrounded by iTunes and App Store, and your life will change. That's a leap of faith the customers made. And Apple obviously followed through. In ThoughtSpot, we have to do all of those things. We have to go to the Tableau customer who is getting that dashboard that they really love, and say, look, that dashboard is not enough in the world where things are changing fast. You need to be able to interact with it, create ad hoc nature of interacting with the data through simple conversational language. These things are not about um, features. It's about showing them an outcome. And what you need from a sales execution point of view is people who are missionaries, who seize that promised land and force the customers to travel, as opposed to mercenaries who will come in and say, give me the quota, I will execute and deliver. And ThoughtSpot had some challenges around that. The company has gone through a couple of iterations of what the go-to-market strategy should be, what the uh, use case should be. And obviously, there's a little bit of reshaping that needs to happen. But after five, six years, the company also have accumulated a valuation, a number of people, so we have to now execute and catch up. So there is a little bit of go-to-market deficit that needs to be paid for. So mm -hmm. that was one of the things that we had to accelerate and catch up. Yeah, the other thing that Sudish has told me is uh, being a surprise is coming to ThoughtSpot, the number of CIOs and chief data officers and CMOs he has met compared to his previous work is very different because ThoughtSpot is one, we are selling to business and we are selling uh, something that is transformational for enterprises. So more often than not, we are sitting across the table with a CMO or a CIO or chief data officer and talking about how we can make an impact on their business. So you're onto something very interesting and there are pros and cons because the, the traditional sales yeah. motion that you built in Nutanix was very bottom up. Find a pain point, you identify it very quickly. It was relatively high velocity. You had, as you said, you know, mercenaries who went in and were really good at swapping out that box. Yeah. And, and it was a great product, of course, but it, was, it started off with a very well-defined use case. Yeah. Here, you're, you're, you're selling yeah. the dream. Yeah. You're selling a dream of yeah. a new paradigm, yeah. Yeah. a new world, yeah. and that has to be bought top-down. That's not a question of one analyst saying or one director-level person necessarily buying. There is much more of a top-down sort of buy-in that's required. Is that a fair? Uh, so part of it is, I would agree with, part of it is not necessarily uh, the way it has Go to on. be done. So if you look at the history of analytics and uh, versus storage, analytics is a market which is harder to get in but harder to get out. Because yep. you are directly used by end users, business, you become part of core business processes. The data that you are crunching and demonstrating and showing is, is a lot more complex. Mm -hmm. Unlike uh, servers and storage, where the interfaces are much simpler, so the replacement story is much, much easier. Yep. 
So you'd see that most companies in this space typically take a little bit longer to be built, but once they are in, they have much more longevity. So if you look at uh, Tableau, they started in 2003. In fact, uh, it was built on the PhD thesis of the, one of the co-founders mm -hmm. at Stanford from 1998 yep. to 2003. And until uh, from 2003 to 2010, pretty much, they were a fairly small company, you know, uh, because it takes time to build the product, understand, uh, uh, get people educated, and replacement. It's a longer sales them, cycle. There is a longer sales cycle and a, and, and a longer adoption cycle as well. Yeah, and also I would say that even Nutanix was, I don't think, was uh, mercenary sales because we had to replace SAN, which customers were hugging at that time. The way I would simplify the early for technical founders who are looking at go-to-market, it is sort of like you're walking by a big slab of marble and you see a big piece of marble. Then someone else walks by and see another piece of marble, the same marble, okay, that's in rock. And then Bernini walks by and Bernini sees that marble and the first thing in his mind is, Wow, look at that amazing sculpture, right? And then he's able to take a chisel and remove everything that is not part of that beautiful sculpture, and then it just appears. The market opportunity exists. The smartest technology founders can figure out where the chisel is and remove everything that is not part of it. But the biggest challenge is sales teams that you bring in, the typical mercenary sales organization that you bring in, for them, they are looking at a 90-day cycle. And that's how the design of sales is done. So what they end up doing is they have this amazing recency bias that will create thrashing on the product architecture. So if you bring a sales leader who understands the purpose of the company and not let the sales organization completely thrash and then have the patience to chip away everything that is not part of the sculpture, that sculpture appears, right? That process is the hardest one that I found for most technical founders to grasp. We'll be right back. I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast, Charles Muldown and Steve Vassallo, my fellow general partners at Foundation Capital. Welcome to the show, guys. Wait, wait, you've got a podcast? In a world. No, no, Steve. In a land. <laughs> no, no, we've got to be In serious here. In a land before time. So I asked Charles and Steve to come on the podcast, and I'm now starting to regret that decision. But I asked them because we have some great news to share with everyone. Charles, you want to do the honors? Uh, sure, I should. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Moldau, general partner at Foundation Capital. First, for anyone not very familiar with Foundation, here's just a quick tour. We're an early-stage venture capital firm. We were founded almost 25 years ago, and we manage about $3 billion of committed capital, which, by the way, we've helped convert into over $300 billion of market cap. Woohoo! Yeah, we've got a record of 28 IPOs, which feels really good including a real whopper in Netflix. Some people don't know this, but it's only one of five companies started in the past quarter century with a market cap greater than $100 billion. But let's amazing. not forget some of the more recent successes, like Sunrun, Lending Club, Two Mogul, and Chegg. Now, the big news we're really here to talk about today is that we're announcing that we've raised our ninth fund, a $350 million fund that our highly paid branding experts have coined, wait for it, Foundation Capital, <laughs> Fund 9. Whoa, time to kill those creatives. Anyway, Steve, do you want to tell folks what we plan to do with the $350 million? Cowboy hats from Gucci. No, wait, that's uh, that other firm up on Sand Hill. So I'm Steve Vassallo, the third general partner in our Foundation Capital Triumvirate. With Foundation 9, the plan is to continue our laser-to-the-moon focus on partnering with extraordinary early-stage entrepreneurs who are trying to build the greatest companies of our time. We do this one thing, and we do it well, the Kentucky Fraud Strategy. We make 10 to 12 new investments a year, 
to ensure that each of our startups gets the attention and assistance that they need to break out. And Steve, let's not forget that in addition to the three of us, we've got a pretty amazing investor team and operations team sitting right behind us. With some very impressive additions that we plan to announce real soon. And let's not forget, huge thanks to the killer LPs who've trusted us with their money. And to any entrepreneurs out there, the whole reason Foundation Capital exists is to support remarkable women and men who are working to build transformative businesses. So if you're someone who dreams big and wouldn't stop, if you have the ambition and daring to build a generationally important company. Right on. And if you're working on an idea that's a fit for our investment thesis, then come find us at foundationcapital.com. Well said, Ashu. Well said. Thanks, guys, for joining me in the podcast. Thanks, Ashu. Thanks, Ashu. Is that it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Ashu, you sound a lot taller on this podcast than in real life. You know, Charles, you look a lot older in person. What do you guys want to order for lunch? You know, I hope that didn't sound too much like a commercial. Totally did. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, guys, what, how about that great company we saw earlier today? Why don't we uh, spend some time talking about that? Guys, a uh, robot renegade cop. <laughs> guys, we really need to get back to our day job. We're much better at that. <laughs> if you look at majority of successful entrepreneurs, the real thing is they have been sometimes very lucky. Yep. And, but surrounded themselves with really, really talented people who will never get named. And what I'm trying to say is, if you can name 10 most common mistakes a sales leader will make in a startup, I guarantee you I've made all 10 of them. Okay, I guarantee you I've made all of them. The story of Nutanix will not be complete with all that amazing success we had if not for, for example, Alan Campbell and Rob Tribe who decided to join this company in... Uh, London, I don't know if you remember, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they used to be in London and make sales calls in Frankfurt and go back. P.K. Lim, who lives in Singapore, who probably make three sales calls in a day were three different countries standing in three passport queues. Wow. Uh, Jason Langoni and Sasha, who came to never done sales for startup or sales for any real company and come to say, OK, we are actually going to do federal for, um, federal for uh, Nutanix. And I'm pointing out those specific examples. When you look back at the strength of Nutanix as a company right now, international is a big strength. Federal is a big strength. These people never did this before, but I love finding people who have a chip on the shoulder. I love people who have something to prove. As long as they have that clay mentality, which can be molded, and you give them an opportunity, I've always found that they actually go through. And I was like that. I've gotten an opportunity I knew that I don't deserve. That imposter syndrome that we talk yeah, about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I am quintessentially that, right? Every room I sit in, I feel like, why am I here? How did I get to here? Do I deserve to be here? Can I say something that makes sense? And I surrounded myself with all of those people. So it is easy for me to sit here and now look back at Nutanix. But the reality is, every step of the way, the mistakes that I made were corrected because I surrounded myself with people who just are legendary. And, and our goal is here. How Just to replicate that? that same culture. Yeah, I think it's very important the founders to realize that they have eventually they have a very small role to play in the success of the company. They do. I mean, they create the company and a lot of uh, their thoughts have become part of the culture and, and so on. But uh, every single day realizing that... Uh, you can't do squat just by yourself and people that are coming all the way from the receptionist to talk about uh, Monique uh, thought part. 
every CIO who used to come here, we are a small office, right? I mean, they are probably also visiting some of the biggest companies that have much fancier mm -hmm. EBCs. Uh, they would come here, they would meet Monique, and when they uh, are leaving, they would always tell me that you have an amazing company because this lady here, she greeted us with so much energy when we were leaving, offering chocolates. You know, it's like you have to realize that she is playing as much a role in building the company as you are. And if you can have that mentality, then you can build a culture and people that will actually do great things uh, without really expecting them to have the fame that you might get as a founder, but you have to realize that you get the unfair yeah, share. I think of the, the disproportionate fame. amount of influence a founder will always have in the company is the soul, which is the culture. I really yep. think that, uh, you know, that's what I was telling you. If I were to come here and be successful and ThoughtSpot is to be the best that it can be, if I can free up Ajit to become the soul without getting the minutiae of those things, that in itself is actually worth it because as we scale, that becomes the thing that is going to bind us or break us. So tell me more about that. Everyone talks about culture and I think every CEO I talk to, every founder I talk to would say the difference between companies that scale and succeed and those that fail is their culture. And yet no two people can agree on what culture means. <laughs> so what does culture mean yeah, to you? Yeah, I don't think, uh, think there will be a simple explanation, but here's how I see it. I see it as, so think of ThoughtSpot. Here, we need to have the best of the best machine learning and AI developers working for us, as an example. These are the same people that are probably being recruited by Google and Facebook and LinkedIn and Netflix and every single company, not in our space. Why are they here? Or why would they come here? They come here because they want to be here, not because they have to be here. And almost always, the way I think of this is, if you were to look back at your life and the happiest moment if I asked you to rank them, you would rank them around people that you, the time that you spent with the people that you love, your friends, you know, having drinks with them, going on a vacation, sitting in the car on your uh, vacation arguing with your parents or whatever, those moments are the one who pops up. Now, obviously, if you have an IPO and things like that, obviously that becomes up there. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, top 10 is almost always that. It, most of it has nothing to do with money. So if you apply that same principle, because here in the modern world, in Silicon Valley that we are working, it is not about eight-hour job or nine-hour job. We are spending 15, 16 of hours of our life. We are asking people to do that kind of investment in a company. It is, how do you make people be motivated to do that? And the only way you can do that is because you build an environment where they feel like they are able to be happy. And that's not, like I said, won't be about money. It'll be about something more. So the first thing you have to make sure is that every person is surrounded by people that they like to spend time with. So I'm um, very passionate about culture as a topic. And uh, the way I like to think about culture is uh, uh, in an organization, how people behave when no one is watching and no one is telling them what to do. In my mind, that is what tells, uh, that is the definition of culture. And uh, I feel that every organization, every team, every company has a culture. And it can either be built deliberately or it can be a series of accidents that happen along the way, people you hire that collectively end up defining uh, the culture. So. At ThoughtSpot, we have right to be uh, extremely deliberate about the culture. And uh, there is companies that are, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in market cap, like Oracle and Facebook and Google. 
all of them are successful companies but very very different culture yep right uh, so there is no one right or wrong culture but you need to as a founder be very deliberate about uh, culture uh, how you build it and uh, how you verbalize it how you express it do you actually act like the culture you talk about or do you uh, just want other people to act in a are certain way are you authentic yeah. yeah are you authentic uh, do you do you yourself actually show other people we so here at thoughtspot we like to call our culture uh, as a culture of selfless excellence we describe it in two words excellence meaning striving to be the world class right. things that we do and if we fail we recognize it and make it better uh, but do it in a selfless manner and put the team and the customer ahead of yourself and i really believe that uh, if we can all be selfless in the long run that is the best way to be selfish now when we talk about this culture we all have to act like that including myself and i tell people that if you don't see me acting selflessly then please by all means call me call on, me on it call yeah. me on it right in public and that's part of culture too if they are afraid to call yeah. that means you're already failed absolutely yeah. you know if for example small things sometimes uh, Uh, you are in a conference room and there is a you another you didn't book it you didn't <laughs> book it right or the next your team meeting is over and the next person is coming in i always feel so happy when someone kicks me out of the conference room because i really think of uh, myself as the bottom of the pyramid guy i'm here to help i'm here to serve and if uh, my team doesn't feel comfortable asking me to do the room because they uh, they booked the room i don't expect other people to be able to do that uh, same thing and have the same discipline and respect and uh, things like that if the ceo founder culture is one thing i don't think you can delegate you know you just have to no matter what scale you are you just have to and the thing that sometimes very difficult to understand is how much the small thing that you do will amplify in the organization absolutely yeah, yeah. you know in, the thing in culture is as you rightly said the culture comes from the founders yeah. to a large extent and every company has a culture yeah. and there is no right or wrong culture yeah. there are you know many many successful cultures no i would just slightly uh, add to that or maybe even 50% disagree that you can't delegate you have to like everything else to scale you have to delegate in the way that you have to that, yeah. be the you have to still uh, you know be the steward of it but you need other people to help scale the culture of course uh, and yeah. you have to enable them yeah. to scale that culture and for that obviously you have to do all the communication and they have to really understand it internalize it and you have to help them understand what it is if uh, you have a sales rep in new zealand what does selfless excellence mean mean you i'll i'll just give you an example please, right we please. had uh, we had this meeting with an industry analyst she said uh, selfless excellence it's a nice word but uh, how about sales you know how do you find uh, selfless excellence in sales if you because sales people are coin operated you know um, then if you want to find people that are selfless excellence you might lose a bunch of them so i was like uh, you know we'll lose just the right kind because even our sales people they have to extend the notion of selflessness when they are dealing with their customer they have to be selfless towards the customer am i doing the right thing uh, for the customer if i am going to just have a very short term view to get a deal done and sell something that the customer shouldn't have it's not going to be long uh, you know you, you made the comment be selfless in the short term to be selfish in the long term. Yeah. Absolutely. And the best sales people are like that. Yeah. They they really look at the world from the customer's point of view. Right. Uh, they don't miss sell, they sell the right thing. And then over time that they builds up. They walk away when they, that's they, not yeah. right. Also remember that, you know, in early stage companies, some of the best startup P sales people, one of the biggest currency that companies want is reference customers. If I have three customers, you don't want to overuse your customers for reference, so a lot of sales people just hug them and not share. 
some of the best quality startup salespeople are the ones who will say, oh, you have a deal going on there? My customer could be a good reference for them. Think about how much of a builder relationship that you... Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great point. I was going to come back to the, this notion of culture. As you both said, you know, every company has a culture. Yeah. And there is no right culture. Yeah. And when you look back, the culture exists and it, get, it changes and evolves very slowly. It's the accumulation of a series of small things that people do. Hmm. The reality is that for most companies, culture is implicit. No one sits down and thinks about what culture they want. It just gets built over time. And it sounds like both of you have thought very carefully about how to build a culture explicitly. So I'll give an example. So culture is not something that happens in a conference room that has no implication to the field because that's the mistake most people do. Like, you know, I don't want to pick on United Airlines, but they used to talk about flying the friendly skies. Now, if you're flying United, you sort of know there is not a lot of friendliness going on, right? <laughs> but culture really affects what we do in the field. So a simple example is, you know, you talked about sales for startup companies. I guarantee you nine out of 10 companies that you're talking to probably struggles west when it comes to selling and they will have more success in the East Coast. So if you're a new company, tech company, trying to sell into the California area, why am I not getting customers in my backyard? Don't worry, you're not alone. <laughs> Most of your deals are going to come from New York and Northeast and uh, Atlanta. Unless you're building something for the engineers. <laughs> yeah, even you know? then I think uh, yeah. they will yeah. say I can build it myself. <laughs> that's true, that's true. So in, in, in a culture, the way culture and sales intersect there is that Pretty much every early engineers, early product managers, founders, execs, they all better be willing to travel out and help sell in the field as opposed to sitting here Monday morning and pontificating over the phone on the forecast call, you should have done A, B, C. And this person is sitting there putting the phone on mute and screaming. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so this is how culture actually gets applied. So. We don't want this to be something that we talk about that you just don't connect. So when you say selfless excellence is if I have to fly on a Thanksgiving week so that I can help seller who's in Europe, go do that, go do it. It is what it is. It's a great example. You know, it's, it's very easy, I think, in, especially in technical startups with very, very technical founders to sit in the background here in, in headquarters. Yeah and tell your poor sales rep in Europe or in Asia or in, on the East Coast. My God, I hate that. Yeah. I really hate it. It happens because all the time. You be on the other side. Did you do account mapping? They probably read a book about Medic. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they understood that. Did you define a champion? And then, you know, salespeople, first of all, already have a bias against technical founders. Okay, they think like, this person is theoretically smart, but doesn't understand what oh, happened. I didn't know that before. <laughs> <laughs> he hides his bias well. <laughs> right? They're thinking like, oh, well, this person probably learned everything in school, but doesn't really know what happens in the field. So the best way to counter that is actually be there. You know, sit in that car, go on that two-hour drive, make a sales call, get rejected, come back together, go have a drink, you know, drown your sorrows in a couple of drinks and then go back, drop them in the hotel and they drive back to their home. Next day morning, they pick you up. Guarantee you, you probably did a whole lot more to build confidence in that sales organization than anything that you can do on a sales kickoff stage. Yeah, actually, that's one thing that I saw Sudish do really well at Nutanix in early days because he had come from a technical background and now he was doing sales. He had a very, and he actually used to talk about it explicitly, building empathy between engineering and sales is very, very important. 
in early days, and uh, we brought that lesson to ThoughtSpot as well. The engineers need to understand what it means for a sales rep who's actually in Boston, and uh, there's going to be a snowstorm that will hit, and uh, you know his house might be uh, without electricity, with kids and everything. Yep. And he's covering a large region, so he needs to fly to Florida to close the deal while the family might be without electricity due to the snowstorm. So the engineers need to have empathy for that. And conversely, the salespeople need to understand that when there is a bug in the product that's hurting a customer or for a deal when there is a small feature that needs to be built overnight, what it means to be an engineer and work for 48 hours nonstop without sleep and deliver that uh, amazing feature to the customer and help them close the deal. I think if you can do that, great things can happen. And uh, you'd see that. So that's a great observation. I think this engineer, salesperson sort of empathy that, you know, some companies get that right. And in some cases, there's always this constant friction. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I had interviewed Jyoti, mm -hmm. uh, he had talked a lot about how he made engineers sit in customer calls how he recorded every customer call and made engineers listen to them. What are other tips and tricks you have for founders on how do they build engineer sales empathy? I think a lot of things. So it comes down to communication because most people want to do the right thing. If they see suffering in a fellow human being, they will jump in and help. It is your responsibility as a founder to communicate that, to teach and to share with the engineering team what it means to do sales and actually have them go out and uh, be on sales calls with the salespeople and uh, internally creating just channels of communication. We have a SOS channel on Slack. If there is a problem in the field, they would post it on, on that SOS channel. I have a demo in five minutes. My thing is not working. Can someone jump in? And you would see that five people would have responded within two minutes to say, how can I help? Yeah, I think it is like both sides of it. So for example, from a, in the headquarters, most of technology, early stage companies too, the engineers and the people in the headquarters, we have a lot going for us. You know, we might be complaining that I don't have my version of green tea uh, in the refrigerator and that's probably showing up in the office vibe, okay? If that person were to go and see how an SC lives uh, in Tokyo, where the office is like uh, eight by 10, and there is like half of that is taken up by cardboard boxes, that is the marketing material. There is a little laptop here, there is no uh, lunch being served, there is no massage being given, nothing. That is difficult to communicate unless that person goes and experiences that. On the reverse of side of that, if the salespeople don't understand what it takes, how complicated the systems are, how integration, all of that. So they will say, oh, well, the release was supposed to come last month. It didn't come for the next two months, and the quality is really bad. What the hell is our engineers doing? They never deliver anything. Things are always late. So leadership, I think, uh, the two things we can do is, one, communicate. Like you said, stories and all. Loss alerts are extremely important in my mind because engineers, by design, have like paranoid view of the world. Like when you say you had a great quarter, they're like, what are you not telling me, right? <laughs> you say you had a large deal, what did you promise? That's what they're thinking. So I found that it is important to actually deliver bad news. And a lot of founders actually sometimes feel like, you know what, we need to protect our engineers. They are so fragile, we shouldn't give them any bad news. In fact, most engineers want to hear bad news. And if you don't give them, they assume the worst. Yeah. So yeah. it is, go stand in there. Look, we did three POCs, two of them we lost. Here is where we lost. In this case, we were chasing the wrong opportunity, so we should make sure sales is not going after that. In this one, we actually suck. Our competitors actually kicked our ass. So let's go and do that. 
and then give a great win that we have. And now this engineering is feeling like, oh yeah, you know what? I don't have to assume the worst because the worst is already given to me. I think we can manage it. So I think that communication plus travel that Ajit talked about are you know, extremely critical in implementing it in a way where both sides get to see that cross-pollination and empathy built. And once you build it, it'll be good. The magic happens. Magic happens, right. yeah. Well, with that, thank you very much. I mean, this has been a, this has been a really fun conversation. I think we could probably edit two or three different podcasts <laughs> out of this. Uh, but we'll start with one. Well, thank you, Ashwin. Thanks, you, having, thank thanks a lot. Us. That's it for this episode. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. How to B2B a CEO is brought to you by Foundation Capital, an early-stage venture capital firm with 27 IPOs, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. I'm Arshur Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you are interested in growing from a technical founder into a business leader, drop me a line. Thanks and see you next time.